I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Security and compliance are two fundamental components of software. Wendy Knox Everett, senior security advisor at Leviathan Security, explained what security and compliance are. We talked about the software development cycle and how security can be involved throughout this. Wendy also explained what compliance software means and the process of making software compliant. Wendy Knox Everett, Senior Security Advisor at Leviathan Security Group, is joining us today. Wendy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Today we're going to focus on security, compliance, and if we have time, incident response. But before we begin with this, I wanted to talk about the software development life cycle because I saw throughout your trajectory, with which spans more than 15 years, you've worked on various parts of this life cycle. So I wanted to understand this first. Can you explain what are some of the components of the software development life cycle? Sure. Yeah, I've hopped around a lot in my career. I started as a software development engineer in test in Amazon, which is basically a software developer who focuses on test automation. So you're sort of definitely plugged into the software release cycle there. Generally, the SDLC is kind of an overloaded term. A lot of developers see it as a software development lifecycle. And in the computer security field, we've kind of overloaded it. And we say a lot of times the secure development lifecycle because we try to focus on getting hooks in and doing uh, security design reviews early to start identifying areas that might be security sensitive areas and making sure that security testing occurs throughout all the way through from essentially developing unit tests to look for things like stack uh, buffer overflows, stack overflows, checking the use of cryptography, things like that out to possibly doing something like a full penetration testing or a like code assisted application assessment before we launch the software. Yes, and you're highlighting something important, the fact that this is an overloaded term. And even I have encountered people that say, oh, it doesn't exist anymore because we don't spend months planning for software designing. We sort of do these things on the go as we are writing the code. Yeah, totally. But in a sense, there is still some parts of the cycle, would you say, in your experience? Yeah, definitely. It is great that we do a lot more agile software now from a security perspective. This is awesome because it means when we find vulnerabilities, we can patch them very quickly. We're not you know, waiting for months to burn a CD to ship out to customers. We can just push out an update to the service, to the website. If it's a device, we can do like an over-the-air update really quickly to it. But that doesn't mean that we no longer do secure development or the cycle is not there. The cycle essentially has many versions of it overlapping as we go. Even though we're doing lots of small pushes, maybe like thousands of them every day, we should still, before we begin a larger epic or launch a new feature and so forth, do these security design reviews, figure out, you know, are we changing authentication here? 
if it's a website thing that we're working on in their forms, have we correctly enabled all our cross-site scripting protections? Are we using frameworks that provide cross-site request forgery protections? And still make sure that the tests that are hooked into our continuous integration, continuous deployment pipelines are testing for security things, even if they're not hooked directly into the deployment, because sometimes there are issues with running things like cross-site scripting scanners or so forth, you can get tons of false positives and so forth. And so people don't want to hold up a deployment for that, but making sure that they're still kicked off regularly and checked and so forth, and they're a part of your greater process. So it's essentially divorcing, like the old waterfall way was we did one design review. There was one big, massive software development chunk. It got thrown over the wall to QA and QA did one testing pass. Maybe there was one loop back to adjust the patches. Then there was one giant golden master build and it got pushed out. And that entire thing was a software development lifecycle. And now we're much more iterative and there are continuous feedback loops within it. But security should still be hooked into all of these processes and things that we think about as we develop and push software. Exactly. And one of the things I heard you mention before is we typically have seen security being addressed at the very beginning of the development cycle. Is this correct? Hopefully it's not at the beginning. We definitely see projects where people go to launch and then they go, oh, hey, maybe we should get security involved now. And the software has already been designed, it's been built, we've got a launch date already scheduled, or maybe they've already started pushing pieces of it. And like that is obviously better than nothing, but it, it's hard at that point to get security to come in and do an assessment and look at things. We might have had feedback on better ways to do authentication, you know, maybe better ways to handle keys and so forth. Like we always joke that like key management is some of the hardest thing to do in software. And if you've already built this entire system, you're depending on certain software libraries and a certain architecture, and then we come in at the end, it's much more awkward for us than if we get involved earlier. I see. And you mentioned a couple of things that you and the team look for, such as key management, cross-site scripting. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about other components of security that are being looked at or evaluated? I know this is a very broad area, but just to get an idea of some of the things. Oh, gosh, (laughs) it's huge. Yeah, not enough for 30 minutes. Yeah, I mean, and so much of it varies by what the platform is. So for example, we do a lot of work with basically companies that have to comply with HIPAA and some of them will have mobile apps. And we look for things like if you're like flipping through a bunch of apps on your phone, like this app that holds sensitive health information, like basically gray out when it's not in focus. And that's not something that we would necessarily worry about with like a web or a Windows application thing. I mean, in general, things that we are worried about are things like access control. So like permissions management, if we need it, like do you have the concept of administrative users versus your end users? Issues of authentication always. And that's probably one of the things that people think of first when they think about security. And as part of that is the thing I mentioned before is key management. It's so dependent on how you do think your work. Like if you're in AWS, we can point you to the AWS KMS, the key management service, which is great, but it's kind of awkward to use. And it can be tricky to set up. Some of the other things that we look at, if you're a website, you know, are you protecting against the OWASP top 10, which is things like cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgery, and stuff like that. Like it's 
kind of a classic set of web issues that have been around since like I first got involved in this stuff in the early 2000s. And sadly, like people have been showing that like cross-site scripting is still a major issue. We really haven't figured out how to fix things in about 20 years. All the way up to like if you have a website and your website uh, basically throws a 500 error, are you leaking sensitive information out onto that error page on your website? Like we'll look at information leakage in various places. So it's kind of a lot of <laughs> different pieces depending on what you're writing and where you're launching it to. Mm-hmm. And you're saying we're still seeing some of the security issues from 20 years ago and there are still issues, which doesn't sound like they should be. But to illustrate this, you mentioned a couple of times the cross-site scripting. For those that don't know what this is, can you explain? Sure. Cross-site scripting is essentially the most common is a reflected cross-site scripting. So you find some place on a website where you as the user of the website can type in some text and it gets sent back um, and you submit a form and it gets sent back to you. So a common one might be like a search box. If I go to a website and I type in, you know, like green because I'm looking for something green, when the search results page comes back, it prints out the word green up at the top. And when it's the text that is coming back, you could put JavaScript into it to try to steal cookies or something like that, or uh, try to steal a cross-site request forgery token. And the reason why this can be an issue is when the code or what you typed in comes back from the website is essentially in a trusted space from the website. The browser says like, hey, I got this from example.com and I'm going to execute this JavaScript. It'll have access to the cookies that are in that domain and the rest of the contents of that page because it's basically in that trusted space from the website. Whereas if you're just typing it on your basically into the browser before it gets submitted, it doesn't have access to essentially a lot of the the cookies or so forth from that domain that you're on. And so there are a couple ways to fix this. The most common one is that you check any data that a user has sent you and you escape out any characters because in order to execute JavaScript, you need to jump back out of, say, that search box that's in there. So you'd want to do like a quote and then a close brace is the most common one to essentially close out whatever input field you're in and then get in. And so you get into all these escaping and filtering tricks. Most common web development frameworks have ways to do this escaping and so forth for you. And so it's really just a matter of reminding the developers to, you know, turn that on to basically note that like this is in a context where the user is going to be putting an input. I see. And I want to talk now more about how to conduct this security evaluation. From what I read, one component of it is there's a security review. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what this can consist of? Sure. So basically a security review at the beginning of a project is more of a design review. We'll sit down and we'll ask what are the sensitive pieces of information? Who's your target audience? Even asking the developers and the product managers because they're very close to it. What are you concerned about? Like a lot of times people have very good instincts for that sort of thing. If we're working with a health sensitive, like mobile app or website app, we might ask like, okay, where is the protected health information? Where are we printing patient names or are we showing prescription forms or something in here? And that's sort of a loose form of threat modeling. You can go way overboard with threat modeling. We always joke that, you know, it's basically if the Mossad is after you, the Mossad will get you. (laughs) And that's not a realistic threat for most you know, small companies and so forth. And so while you want to protect 
the information, it can make it conversely more insecure if you go so overboard and you lock things down so much that people try to escape using the protections you put in place. So as part of the security review, basically be like, okay, what are the realistic threats that we're worried about? Where are we taking user input? What's the sensitive information that we have in here? How is it stored? Are we doing something crazy like storing health information in a plain text file on the user's mobile device? Is it in a database on our back end? Do we have middleware services talking between the front end and the database and how are they authenticating and things like that? It really is kind of led by what we need this piece of software to be doing and what are the tools that are available to us. It could be that we're developing within a framework that you know does a really great job with authentication and so forth and so we can be like okay we just need to make sure that we're not disabling any of this and at that point in time we might start talking about cryptographic controls you know like are we using standard cryptography libraries here if we're taking passwords are we salting and then using bcrypt to store them um, because you know obviously you don't want to store user passwords in plain text and so forth and so it's kind of where we will sit down and sort of try to tease out some of the sensitive areas and build sort of guardrails for the development team as they go in and implement and sort of a checklist of like make sure you know we're doing these protective controls here for things. Are there tools that can help identify threats and enhance the security review process? There definitely are. Some of the things that people do during development is you can run static analysis tools and so forth. Like once you've started coding, they're great. I know they can be very hard to train and you'll get a lot of false positives and so forth, but they're still generally worth doing. Uh, One of the things that we do when we talk with folks to sort of assist with the threat modeling is we do something called a binary risk analysis a lot of times. And it's a set of 10 questions that sort of tries to lead you through to getting a handle on like, what am I actually concerned about here? You can Google binary risk analysis and it will come up with a bunch of stuff, but one of the primary websites to learn about it is binary.protect.io. And they have like a really nice web tool up there. And it looks at things like, can the attacks we're concerned about be completed with common skills? Like right now, cross-site scripting is something that like almost anybody could do. It doesn't require a lot of skill versus some other tools that require the use of exploits. Like is that exploit available in Metasploit, which is a pen test tool um, that people can make essentially modules available for. We look at, can the attack get completed without significant resources? Like do I need a binary reverser to reverse the code to this mobile application or something, or can I just go and like do view source on a web page to see this vulnerability? And we look at some of the other compensating controls and things in place and sort of go through that. And so that's one of sort of the frameworks that we can use to look at this. A lot of companies have developed, you know, sort of their own sort of frameworks and ways to walk through this that are going to be a little bit more keyed to essentially the stuff that they're trying to protect against and how they do their software development. The first one that you mentioned was running static analysis and how sometimes this can have false positives. Can you explain what this consists of and some of the things that can be found by doing this? Sure. So static analysis is going to vary by the language that you use. It's basically, it takes the code and it just looks basically essentially through the code like in a text file as opposed to dynamic code analysis, which is looking at the code as it's really running. What would be one example if you can pick any language just to illustrate an example? Sure. This is a hard one to 
So basically, is the code probably throwing errors that are uncaught? Are you using variables without initializing them? Are you basically, if you're using a language where memory safety is a concern, like it might look to be like, hey, you're not, you know, initializing these strings where you're setting the size. And so you're setting yourself up for, you know, buffer overflow and so forth. And those types of checks that it does will vary between something like Java versus C versus Python. And so it's essentially looking for sort of bad coding practices. We could say like bad might be strong because there can be reasons why developers want to do a particular thing. Like they may want to use um, some sort of design pattern that is really fast and we have compensating controls elsewhere to make sure that this couldn't be exploited. And so the static analysis tools essentially trying to leverage a set of heuristics of like this kind of pattern in the code can tend to lead to a bug that can be remotely exploited or something. And so it's trying to flag them for you, but it essentially it's not <laughs> as smart as a human. It can't look at the overall system as easily. And if you, a lot of the tools, if you use, you can sort of start tuning them and being like, no, no, like that kind of thing is okay over here. Mm -hmm. You know, like, are we looking for like a null dereference or something like that's probably not going to be good, but we could say like, well, it's protected from an end user ever getting into this function here in a way that could be exploited. Let's talk about another area that you're working on and it's a little bit related to security, which is compliance. And you mentioned it earlier. Can you explain what compliance means? Sure. <laughs> so it's another broad, very broad area, but just, I always like to mention just some of the components of compliance. Sure. Compliance generally is a set of security controls, basically, that are grouped together into a framework. And you might need to follow all of these security controls because you have protected health information. And the US federal government has said they've promulgated a set of rules and like the HIPAA privacy rule and the HIPAA security rule that say, if you hold protected health information, here's some things that you need to do. Like you can only allow authorized people to view this information and you need to give everybody security training before they can access the health information. So they understand the sensitivity of what they're looking at. Or it might be things like FedRAMP, where you are following the set of controls that are derived from a control set called NIST 853 because you want to sell your services to the federal governments. Like federal agencies can't use a tool like Office 365 unless Office 365 complies with the FedRAMP security rules. Or it could be a little bit more self-imposed. We work a lot with companies that want to get something called a, a SOC 2 audit, which is basically an assessment of their IT security controls that they can then turn around, like if larger enterprise companies are going to use their tool, they can say, okay, we can show you our SOC 2 report and you can see the sort of security controls that we have in place to protect your information if you start using our tool. And there's some similar ones, there's like ISO 2701 and so forth that are pretty similar where they're looking at how your security program is run and what sort of protective controls do you have in place? Like, do you have an IR plan? Are you doing, which is be an incident response plan? Are you doing incident response tabletops? Do you have a disaster recovery plan? How do you do your access control and what would happen if you fired an employee? Do you have ways to quickly pull their permission so that they can't you know, get into your AWS account that evening and go and delete all of your AWS resources and so forth? And so I joke a lot that my job is really to try to work with companies to meet these compliance standards without becoming less secure, because there are definitely things in some of these standards that are 
fuzzy and you could interpret them in a way that would lessen your security. Or in my opinion, they're just not good security practices. Like FedRAMP has a requirement that you lock accounts after 10 incorrect password attempts. And we are concerned that if we implement that control, like just following the plain text, like any account that has 10 incorrect password attempts, we lock it, that people will just try a bunch of random passwords against all the administrative accounts, <laughs> lock out all the administrators, and then go do some other exploit while the admins are unable to get in and kick them out. And so sometimes you have to look at these controls and say, like, okay, what's the spirit of the control? Or how do I comply with this? Or just flat out write out, like, we are not going to directly comply with this control because here's the threat we're concerned about. I see. And in this area of compliance, earlier you mentioned, for example, we check if the software is HIPAA compliant, what are these compliant terms? Are these uh, well-known rules that have been established by some organization or something, just to get a sense of how all this works and how we come to agreements? HIPAA is a sort of a special one because the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services promulgates a set of rules through the Code of Federal Regulations, and they're sort of grouped into the HIPAA Privacy Rule, which talks about how you protect the privacy of patient information, the HIPAA Security Rule, which is what I work most often with. And if you Google the HIPAA audit protocol, you can actually see the sort of things that we look at to check this sort of thing. So like, I just pulled this up and I'm going to scroll through the privacy things down to security. So like section 164.316a asks, do we implement reasonable and appropriate policies and procedures to comply with the standards, implementation, specifications, and other requirements of the subpart, which is a lot of crazy regulation speak for, do you have written policy? and procedures for how you do access control, how you do change management, and so forth. And the HIPAA security rule is very concerned with access control. It's fairly concerned also with like basically incident response things because it has the breach notification rule, which means that if you have protected health information exposed to someone who is not authorized to view that, you have to report this to the Health and Human Services Department's Office of Civil Rights. And if it's greater than, I believe it's 500 people's health information, then they publish it, they make it public, they do fines and so forth. Some of the other standards are put out by other organizations. So like the SOC 2 uh, controls that I mentioned are promulgated as a set of basically trust principles um, by, I'm going to mispronounce this, IPICA. It's basically, it's a AI CPA, I believe. It's a group of accountants that have come up with a set of standards because the SOC type one is a set of financial controls. And so they basically went and promulgated equivalent sets of controls for IT stuff. Let's switch gears for the remaining of the time and talk about your trajectory, because I found it really interesting that you were an intern at Microsoft in the late 90s, then you were six years at Amazon, among other companies, and you held roles in software development testing, quality assurance. And after that, I saw you studied law and worked in this field. And now you're focused in security and compliance. Can you talk a bit about your trajectory? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit random, but it's also not super random. Yeah, it's not super random. If you look closely, they, they all connect all those areas. I'm good at breaking things. I joke it's the common thread. 
Yeah, I mean, I the internships are great. I got a essentially a scholarship from Microsoft that they give to women studying computer science where they'll pay your tuition if you come out and intern for them. And then, hey, they pay you for interning for the summer. It was great. So I did it for two years and it was amazing. And I discovered that I'm actually great at breaking computers basically by looking at them. So like testing was an obvious sort of fit there. And then I went to work at Amazon as an SDET, which is basically a developer who works on test frameworks and helps basically devs write code to go basically check things out. We weren't at that point in time really doing continuous integration, but we were doing really frequent launches. I think we launched about once a week, which was super fast for like 1999. And we had tons of test automation. (laughs) Back in that day, when you launch once every nine months, that was incredibly fast. And so we had to figure out like, hey, you know, QA is used to taking three months to test something. How do we test things in a day or two? And it was essentially Selenium didn't exist. And so we wrote Perl that was like a proto Selenium to go, you know, like, can we still do a search? Can we place an order on the website and so forth? And then, yeah, so I kind of bounced around mostly in roles like for a couple of years. And I ended up back at Amazon doing essentially a lot of performance testing. Amazon is very focused, the speed and responsiveness of the website, especially around the holiday period. And it was great. I loved it. And it completely burned me out. (laughs) So got to a point where my husband, who was active duty military, was moving to Washington, D.C. for a new assignment. And he had just been to grad school, which freed up his GI Bill. And he was like, you should come to D.C. with me. And there's tons of schools in D.C. And you should just go back to school for a couple of years. And I was like, OK. He's like, you should go get an MBA. Like, it'd be kind of cool. Like, that's a useful thing to have. And I was like, I keep getting in basically these discussions with the Amazon attorneys about privacy on the Kindle platform, which is what I had been working on. And I don't understand where they're coming from on some of this. Like, I just, I don't get it. And it frustrates me. I was like, I am just going to try taking the LSAT and apply to law schools for this. Like, let's, you know, do law school and or do a graduate school in DC thing. Um, and I ended up at George Mason Law School doing the national security law program there because that was the closest to a computer security thing that they had and the computer security privacy sort of stuff. And it was fascinating. Um, I kind of hopped around. I did a couple internships at different federal agencies during uh, my time in law school. So I got to be in the FCC's Enforcement Bureau, which was really cool to see how a big federal agency looks at enforcing the rules and regulations on like large telecoms and so forth. And I interned uh, with a FTC commissioner, Commissioner Olhausen. I got to see how the FTC looks at computer security. One of my favorite things from there was I ended up in a conference room with a couple attorneys trying to explain to them how cross-site request forgery worked because it was part of one of the cases they were working on. And they're like, yeah, like we've got this legal stuff, but like what is actually happening? What does the, you know, the end user of the software actually see and what's the threat here? So that was really fun. And after I did a fellowship at a law firm in DC called Swilgen, which is very focused on computer security and privacy. And they basically went in and did, so Swilgen works with a lot of tech companies on stuff. And they were doing something I had never seen before, which is vendor security reviews. And I got involved in that where basically they would have uh, some of their clients ask them to help evaluate the computer security of companies that they were entrusting private information to. And they used a compliance framework called SIGLite to evaluate that. And that was sort of how I got into this, like working with compliance frameworks. And it is a nice meld of the technical and the legal side of things. Yes, exactly. And the the connection that I saw with this was 
testing, you're breaking things, you're finding things that are working properly. And then in some ways, there are some of the cases are security related, right? You're testing and you're like, oh my God, I have access to the admin website. So that's security. Yeah, like how did that work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then there are a lot of, you know, compliance and regulations. And like you said, that's where the the law yeah. piece comes in place, I think. And it's also always all the way back to the first QA job that I had been figuring out how to communicate risk and how to talk to non-technical people about risk. One of the things that we do a lot of right now is like, well, we had this vulnerability come in from a bug bounty. Do we need to fix it right now? What's our exposure if we don't? How much of a problem is this going to be if we let it sit here? Or, you know, we could entirely rewrite our key management but it's a huge tax on development. We would have to pull a bunch of developers for a couple of weeks to go fix this, or we could sort of hop along where we are and how do we figure out how to make this decision? And that's a lot of talking with business people about like, okay, like what's our comfort with exposure? What are our other goals? If we go do this, what revenue are we passing up on and so forth? Um, and that's something all the way back to like, you know, the QA would be like, okay, if we launch with this bug, like, what's the worst that could happen? Is it worth actually addressing? And so that's been sort of a constant throughout all of this. Exactly. Well, Wendy, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you about security, compliance, and other things. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been lots of fun. 